Hi, I'm Sunny Dean. And I'm Scott Drakeford. And this is the Publishing Rodeo Podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books, and subsequently each of our careers, went in very different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival? In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career. Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a big five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more. I do. I do enjoy your intro music. Is that is that you guys play? Are you, is that you on bass? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I went and found uh, what was it? Some royalty free, like copyright free right, music. Right, right. I'm I'm very <laughs> I'm very disillusioned now because I just imagined at the beginning of every episode you're there sort of playing bass as you introduce the you know. Yeah, I can just about tell a bass from a regular guitar. So. <laughs> <laughs> We really should have Lee record something for us, shouldn't we? Seems like a missed opportunity. Welcome to this week's Publishing Rodeo. We're a little bit out of sync with, with the order of our episodes, but that's all right. I don't think anyone will mind. With us today is Mark Stay, who founded and ran for seven years, although you think I think he's recently stepped down. We'll talk about that in a second. Founded and ran the bestseller experiment, which funnily enough is a podcast I used Maybe. to listen to. And then quite randomly last June, I, I've agreed to do um, this sort of book event in Medway Literature Festival and was, didn't really pay attention to anything on, on the sheet and sort of turned up. I was like, oh, Mark Stay is the other author that I'm in conversation with. <laughs> Who the hell are you? <laughs> what are you doing at my event? Get out. <laughs> oh, it was, it was brilliant fun, uh, even though he told me a, a story about his first live theatre performance that has haunted me ever since. So uh, <laughs> if you want to introduce yourself, Mark, and, and the many, many things that you, you do and have done, that would be a fantastic place to start. Thanks, folks. And thanks for having me on. I really, I really appreciate this. I'm a big, big fan of the podcast. Listen to every one of them. So, um, uh, yeah, so I'm Mark Stay. I'm an author and screenwriter. Uh, I worked in book selling and publishing for 25 years as well. So I, I, I went to... I went to Waterstones for a Christmas job and ended up working in the industry for over half my life. Yeah, I was co-presenter of the the bestseller experiment, which is still going, I hasten to add. I just stepped back for perfectly amicable reasons uh, last Christmas, simply because I've I've got a lot on this year, a lot of writing projects. And uh, it was taking up, I don't have to tell you guys this, it was taking up a lot of time, (laughs) which I, I, I sort of had to, I had to focus on stuff elsewhere. So yeah. It does take up. Did you ever find that, I mean, the, the pressure of it as well? Because I think bestseller really took off in, in, in some quadrants, I guess. You're kind of the guardian in all sorts of places. Yeah, we had we had a really busy first year and we only meant to run for a year. The idea was that myself and Mark, because I, I, I'd done, I'd written, the, co-written the film Robot Overlords and I did the film novelization and that was my first book. And people, when you, when you write a movie, people come out of the woodwork. And an old friend of mine that I knew from my teens, a guy called Mark DeVoe, got in touch. She said, I've always wanted to write a novel. This is great. You're living the dream. He said, I've always wanted to write a novel, but I always get stuck at 20,000 words. And one thing led to another and we sort of challenged ourselves to co-write 
a novel within 12 months and self-publish it. But the thing that we did, I think the best thing that we did was we challenged our listeners to beat us to it. So we said, if you've got a half written novel in a drawer or, you know, if you've always, if you're just starting from scratch or you've got one you wrote five years ago and put it away, dig it out, listen to the old, because we, you know, we, we kicked off a, a bit of luck. I was, it was Galantz Fest just before we started recording. So I got Joanne Harris, you know, Joe Hill, Joe Abercrombie, we, all the Joes. We, we got some fantastic authors to, to start us off. And then we had the Brian Cranston episode as well which went viral because mm. we rather cheekily said to him, because this is 2016, we said, if, if Trump gets in, you know, do you want to go and live with Mark DeVoe in Canada? And it got reported as Brian Cranston will leave America if Trump gets in. And we, we were on Fox News. We had, we, you know, we had bots trying to crash our website, all sorts of stuff. But we, we were everywhere. But the, the key thing was that first year, all these amazing people were listening to, who still listen to it now, who are part of the BXP group, which is a group on Facebook if you're a Patreon supporter. And some are in the Bestseller Academy now, which uh, Mark started a couple of years ago. And I've got a shelf over there, two shelves there, sort of two deep, full of people who've been published because they were inspired by someone or something they heard on the show. I mean, one of the first ones was Mike Shackle, who got a three-book deal with Golantz uh, for his book. So, um, you know, we've had award winners, Kindle Storyteller Award winners, uh, RNA Award winners. So it, it was just an absolute joy. It's one of the best things I've ever done. We discovered this amazing, amazing community of people who all support each other. Yeah, but after 580 episodes and seven years of it, I, and I've got, there's a couple of things happening this year which might happen, uh, and it they were just, I thought it's better to quit while I'm ahead and just focus on these other things. Very happy I did it. It's been fantastic. Yeah, I mean, that, that resonates with me a huge amount because I have generally a very anxious person. I just have the sense that because podcasts in a way, they're very much more a cult of personality than books are or yes. than authors tend to be. And there's always that thing where it's like you're bound to say something eventually or have on the wrong guest or have on the wrong topic <laughs> or handle it in the wrong way. And I, I'm so conflict avoidant. The idea just sends me to a spiral. So quit while we're ahead is probably going to be my <laughs> motto for season two. Well, it's interesting what you say about the, the cult of personality thing, because, you know, what the world really needs is two more white blokes telling everyone what to do. <clears throat> but uh, <laughs> we, we, we did reach a turn. If you listen to the first episode we did with Sarah Pimbra, and Sarah's a fantastic guest. It was absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. Um, but Sarah was very sweary, as you'd imagine, and uh, she'd had a couple of drinks as well. And it got very, and we were like naughty schoolboys egging her on, as if to say, be naughty, Sarah, be naughty. And she duly obliged. And um, we sort of, that episode didn't really sit comfortably because uh, I know Mark DeVoe, he, he was thinking, I want this to be a legacy for my kids. I want my kids to be able to listen to this. Mm. So we decided very early on to make it basically PG 13, you know, at the most one F bomb per episode. So, yeah, although we did do a whole episode on swearing, we've done a whole episode on sex scenes, you know, so we warn people ahead of that. But, um, yeah, it was uh, you have to find the tone very early on. And we also we wanted it to be best foot forward, kind of positive. Yeah. We we're we're and I mean, I love your podcast, but we're, <laughs> we're like we're like the anti publishing rodeo. Uh, and we don't cover things up. We don't pretend it's all wine and roses, but we, we try and think of, a you know, try and think of the positive way to get over those things and, 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 uh, you know, approach those things. Yeah, no, and that, that's actually very fair. And one of the things that I, I wanted to talk to you about, which is basically, I always felt in the early days when I was looking into indie and, and again, when I was listening to bestseller experiment, the idea you would set out 
with a goal that's very high and very specific and try and achieve it. And I, I do think like, I don't want to make authors feel like I'm blaming them, but I do think there is a, a culture of defeatism sometimes in trad. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> um, where we just kind of like, well, we're not going to make anything. So there's no point. Like let's just yeah. accept the pennies and, and mm-hmm. you, maybe you can't do anything about it, but you can, I don't know. It, it just, if you decide that it can't change, it doesn't. And that's true in lots of things. I mean, I think one of, one of I mean, it's it's a trait that all creatives have, I think. I think because we train ourselves to see the best of things and the worst of things. And we, I mean, every author I know is um, a very empathetic person and they're very caring. And it's why there is this massive liberal bias in, in writing creativity. Just because we care about other people, we think, what would, you know, what that person over there who's different to me, what, how would they think? I'm going to put myself in their shoes for a short while and try and figure out what that's like. So, uh, you know, we're very empathetic, but also I think that the flip side to that is we are also doom scrollers. You know, we're thinking, oh, and we are training ourselves. I mean, I don't know about you, when I'm writing, I'd like to be an Old Testament God to my characters. I like to do the absolute worst thing to them and test them and prod them and make their lives an absolute misery, which means I'm always thinking of the worst thing to do. So, you know, you have this anxiety sort of simmering away in the background of your creative because you have imagined apocalypses and murders and terrible things so i think that's always there and i don't think it's just a trad thing i think you get a lot of indie authors who think it's going to be easy because maybe they were a midlist author and thought great i'm going to go out and do my own thing it's really really hard yeah it's expensive uh you know especially if you're going to pay for an artist pay for copy editors editors proofreaders all that kind of stuff it's not cheap and then your first book doesn't do anything and it's like what do I do I've made a terrible mistake you know so there's um you know there are what we never wanted to do was say to people oh just you know if you listen to those early episodes Mr D talks about a formula and the seven secrets and I was always there are no secrets there's a lot of luck there's a lot of being in the right place at the right time there's a lot of perseverance is involved I think that's probably one of the biggest lessons we've learned is you have just if you really want this learn to love the process uh, because there are no promises. You know, even authors who are at the absolute peak of their game. Mm. You know, I worked in the industry for 25 years. I remember when Orion moved from Covent Garden to where they are with Hachette over by Blackfriars Bridge. I'm clearing out old folders and catalogues and I'm opening catalogues. And most of the authors I'm looking at aren't writing anymore. You know, they've moved on or they've given up or they had their moment in the sun and it's gone. So, you know, but there are people who are still there who still and not all of them are the big best selling names as well. There are people who just love to do this and you've got to love to do it. You've got to love the process. And that for me is the, the biggest lesson that we learned because um otherwise you can go absolute nuts, you know, particularly if you're trying to compare yourself to other people. It's uh it's that's that's the road to madness, frankly. Well, for people who don't know your long road, how did you go from, you know, 25 years bookseller to becoming an author? And now I've, you're a hybrid author. So you kind of across all the different bridges. That's... Well, I am like an idiot. I wanted to be an actor. So I did. I, uh, my wife went to drama school. She she got the grant. That's how old we are. And I was working at Waterstones and I said, well, you know, you go to drama school. I'll work at Waterstones. We'll keep the lights on kind of thing. You teach me everything you know. Then we started our own theatre company. And I had, I had booked a play by an author called Johnny Spate who died. And I think the family withdrew the rights. So I had a, a theatre 
and no play. So in the course of about eight weeks, I wrote a play about all the terrible camping holidays my family had taken me on, and uh, we, we put it on. And people really liked it. And I, I grew up in a working-class family, didn't know anyone publishing or, or, or anything like that. So the idea of being a writer, I wrote at school. Teachers told me I was a good writer, that I had an imagination, all that kind of stuff. But it just seemed like a dream to me that I could, I could write a film. But when I put this play on, a friend of mine who was, he makes documentaries now, but back then he was what they called a cable basher for a show called TFI Friday, which is when the cameras run around. He runs around with the cables afterwards. He was the one person I knew in showbiz. And he said to me, he said, there are too many actors, but not enough writers. Keep writing, which I think was his way of telling me I was a terrible actor. That was, I can trace that because that was just before my daughter was born. So that's 24 years ago. So I started writing screenplays. I wrote a screenplay that got optioned, never got made. But the producer introduced me to John Wright, who was the co-writer and director of Robot Overlords and Unwelcome, the film that came out last year, 2023. And John and I just started writing together. And this movie, Robot Overlords, a kid's movie about uh, these, you know, a robot invasion and these kids go on, on an adventure. And we somehow got Ben Kingsley and Gillian Anderson on board and it premiered at the London Film Festival. And while we we're in post-production, and I had been trying to write fiction and enjoying it, but it's kind of floundering, not quite knowing what to write. What was my genre? That kind of thing. By then, I was working at Orion and we published Joe Abercrombie and Joe Hill and people like that. And I was, you know, in awe of them. And we were in post-production and the producer said, oh, we could do T-shirts. We could do a book. And I went, I'll do the book. I will do the book. That's me. Let me do the book. So published 10 years ago next year, 2025. Um, and that was my way in. And it was interesting because it was published by Gollantz. And I worked at Orion. And I remember John Wood at uh, Orion saying, we don't publish staff. We don't publish mates. But I said, look, just give me a chance. Let me write 10,000 words and and you know, you can tell me if, if it's any good. And they bought it based on those 10,000 words. And I was edited by Gillian Redfern, who was a goddess, you know, amazing. I, and I, I learned so much just from finishing and going through that process. I mean, that, that's the other thing that a lot of people who haven't been published yet, that thing of going through the, and I knew, you know, I worked in the industry. I knew how it worked. But until you go through that thing of redrafting, uh, an edit, a copy, the copy edit was the real surprise. It's amazing. Uh, proofreading, all of that. And so, yeah, it came out. Unfortunately, the film did not get a great release. I think it's officially a cult film now. So. <laughs> but people seem to like it. But people did enjoy the book. And that kind of spurred me on to do more. So I, I then uh, we did um, Batch Reality for the podcast, which was mm. the book that we self-published. And then I did a fantasy novel called The End of Magic. And I'm working on a sequel to that now. And then uh, three three years ago, yeah, uh the first of the Witches of Woodville series came with from Simon and Schuster. I remember when I started working at Waterstones in Dorking, and American listeners would be going, "Really? There's a place called Dorking? Yes, there is a place called Dorking in in Surrey, and it was the smallest Waterstones in the whole chain." And back then, Waterstones insisted that everyone have a degree who worked there, and I I haven't been to university, and I I snuck in because I was just going to work there for Christmas, but they liked me and they kept me on. And I remember meeting the sales reps and meeting authors and thinking, this is it. I'm in this thing that I never thought I could get into. I mean, I've got a foot in the door. And I thought, that's it. I'm never leaving. And I learned so much. I just soaked up everything. I went in every course I could go on, went to every convention, all that kind of stuff, and just uh, learned everything I could about how the whole system works. So everything you've been talking about, publishing meetings, acquisition meetings, art meetings, uh, editorial meetings, I've been in them all. I've seen them all. And um, and because, of, because I've seen both the best and the worst of it, 
I kind of have quite a sanguine attitude to it all because I know that in the end, what really counts is loving the process and perseverance, I think. That's a very long answer. Sorry. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> I, I asked for it. Um, it's just fascinating to me because you come at it from completely the opposite angle, I think, almost like through the industry and then out out to authorhood. Which is cheating, kind of. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, that seems seems to be more and more common these days. Um, I'm, I'm curious. What's that? And I was just going to say there's no regular path in. Like oh, no, so many people yeah. you talk to, it's like... Like the received wisdoms, you're not supposed to ask people on podcasts for their story of how they got into their role, right? Like I've, I've heard that before. But in, in publishing, I feel like everyone is such a weird path in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, 580 episodes of, of the podcast. I don't think we've heard the same story twice. Mm. There are a lot of lawyers. That's one pattern <laughs> I noticed. Because lawyers, they they are one of the few professions where you get a lawyer on the show that say, oh, and I took a year off to write my novel. It's like, oh. Did you now? Okay. <laughs> Good for you. Uh, which, you know, us, a lot of us mere mortals can't do. But um, that was, uh, that's one thing I've seen cropping up. But yeah, I mean, I remember when I worked at Headline, I remember one of the editors, Charlotte Mendelssohn, she published a novel while, while um, I was working there. And I was at Orion, Robin Stevens, a fantastically successful children's author. I remember her getting her book deal there and thinking, wow, fantastic. You know, So it is becoming, I think a lot of people do see it as a great training ground just to learn about the industry. Because as you guys have, have pointed out, this industry has its own language, its its own mysteries, its its own way, weird way of doing things. You know, that where when outsiders come in, they come. Well, why do you do it like that? And they kind of, we kind of that's how we've always done it. You know, and I I was lucky enough to work through what I think was the biggest publishing revolution since the Gutenberg Bible, which is uh, the ebook you know revolution. And I was um, because I was I think because I was the only person who in the in the sales team who knew what a podcast was they said oh you can look after amazon then because <laughs> i'm i was the young person who knew about digital so um so yeah i looked after that and uh, sort of you know i got the first ever kindle device and used to meet with you know kindle team and the amazon team and all those folks and apple and kobo and saw them all sort of rise and you know become different things as time went on so i uh, and forgive any ignorance on my part the, about your your path and your your process and everything one thing that is really interesting to me and i'd love to hear your take on is you had been in the industry at orion sounds like you were on the sales side at, at yes. orion and the publishers yeah, yeah. Yeah. i i think we're gonna have more questions on that too <laughs> but you you had been published traditionally and then you start your podcast and you decided to sounds like so uh, you decided to go self-publish for yes. that before you even wrote it. You you just didn't consider trad as a path for that. I'm we, curious as to why that uh, would have been and how that worked out. Because I think if we had, we'd still be waiting for it to be published. Um, yeah. I, it was. I mean, we had we had the conversation. We said, look, we can go down the traditional route, or we know we can self-publish. We know, and I'd never done it up to that point, and I, I was curious to know more. And yeah. we just thought as well, just as, a, as an example to our listeners, we could say, look, we're going to make all these mistakes on the way. You, we'll make the mistakes so you don't have to kind of thing. And because we'd set that deadline of a year. So not only did we have to write it and edit it and all the other stuff, we had to publish it 
exactly one year later, which we did. So it was yeah. the only conceivable way of releasing a book in a year. And that was what yeah. was kind of exciting about it. And also we kind of thought there was a part of me thinking this might, there's a danger this book could end up a complete dog's dinner and a complete disaster. And, you know, no publisher would pick it up necessarily. Fortunately, it's a very good book that I'm very proud of. Uh, you know, so uh, it all turned out fine in the end. Um, but yeah, it was it was mainly just because we'd set that that twelve month deadline. It was the only way we could possibly do it. No, I mean you know what it is. From the minute you sign a contract with a publisher, it could be eighteen months before your book is is in stores. Yeah. So um, we yep. which I which I knew and I told you know Mark my co presenter. So as soon as we we kind of thought yeah that's we did. I mean once it had been published, we did approach a couple of publishers and say are you interested? And they were kind of like, well, you've done it. You know, you've put it out there now. So back in the early days, I remember I gave myself two years to try and write and publish a novel, which I thought was like a huge amount of time because I knew nothing. And now I look back and just find that absolutely hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. I mean, again, a lot of people, because what you only ever see are the headlines. You see, oh, so-and-so got a six-figure deal and they sold the film rights and blah, blah, blah. Uh, You know, that's, I, I had this just last year when the movie came out. I had the BBC Southeast News come to my house and interview me, and um, you know I talked for an hour. But the only thing that ended up in the piece was the fact that Warner Brothers had paid one point one million pounds for the script, which is the most that Warner Brothers UK had ever paid for a horror script. But the way they reported it was that the money went to me, and it didn't. It went on the budget. So, um, you know, they, they're always looking for that hook, that kind of, oh, money, money, money kind of thing. So when, you know, I, I'm sure you've had this as well, when you visit family or friends and say, oh, I'm an author, and they go, bet you're doing all right for yourself, aren't you? You know, it's like, no, I'm skin. I'm stony broke, you know. So it's, it, there is that mythology, and, and unfortunately, you know, and you see there are courses that will promise you millions if you sign up to do their course and blah, blah, blah. So there's a lot of mythology out there, which I'm glad you guys are doing your best to, you know, Trying. <laughs> give, a, give us a reality check, you know. So when, I mean, when you're doing, you know, you must have come into it with a lot of sales experience, a lot of awareness of how bookshops are working and without wanting you to condense kind of seven years of podcast, what were some of the big takeaways? Because, you know, if you're advising authors for things they can do, whether they're indie or, or trad, to give their book a good shot to try and build themselves up. Um, because I felt like it was very much a bootstrap operation where you were setting out to do you know, to basically launch your book as well as you possibly can. And I, I think for a smaller press or mid, even mid-list authors, there's a lot there that they can learn from. I think one of the most important things we did was build a community. And uh, I realised that not every author mm. can do this with a podcast, but that was one of one, that was one of our goals. We thought, well, let's, you know, we'll build a pop, we'll build a community around us when we for when we launch the book. Uh, but even so, I think one of the most important things you can do as an author is get your little one page website. It doesn't have to be anything elaborate, because God knows we all need a little corner of the internet that we can call ours. Because social media is at the whims of billionaire man babies, and they can, you know. <laughs> and my co presenter Mark Devoe, he. Um, he was a mus- is a musician and had a band and his band had uh, 80,000 followers on um oh god I forget what it's called now what was the social media platform before facebook but anyway myspace myspace thank <laughs> Holy you shit <laughs> you know and everyone just moved to myspace and he lost them all overnight 
And so, you know, th- another big lesson we learned was start a newsletter. Just start a newsletter because each one of those people who signs up to your newsletter is a reader who's going to tell another reader who's going to tell another reader. So it's build build your readership straight away, day one, before you've even finished your book because by the time the book comes out it's kind of too late you know you need to have a small audience there that you can at least talk to and can become your champions um i mean in terms of what to write i mean i'm very much a do as i say don't do as i do kind of person because you know i think if you're the big difference we've noticed is that particularly say say if you're writing fantasy if you're going traditional what they're looking for are exciting new voices and new takes on the genre. They're looking for people who can push the boundaries, who can bring something new. If you're going self-publishing, what readers want there is straight down the line fantasy. They want dragons and they want battles and they want quests. And, you know, so that's a huge generalization, but that's one of the things I've noticed from, the, from and same with crime as well. You know, if you're writing straight down the line, cozy crime, detective crime, whatever, you can do very, very well self-publishing or going with the digital first publisher. But if you want to push boundaries, if you if you want to do something that's different and you have a, an exciting voice uh, that's not like everyone else, then, then tread might be the way to go. Again, huge generalization, but that's kind of one of the big patterns that I've seen, particularly recently, the way the industry is going because they're taking on fewer and fewer authors. I'm really um, glad you said that, actually, because one one of the things that does drive me nuts is I think like um, there's an agent that that said on Twitter the other day, he was talking about how the market gets oversaturated and his replies filled up all these people saying, well, it's because trad only wants generic books and that's what sells. And it's like, but it actually doesn't because what sells in trad is the books that cross genres. When you cross out of a genre and you grab all the mainstream readers and not to pick on anyone particularly, because this is a sentiment I've seen in lots of different places, but one of the things people were saying in that thread is, you know, show us the evidence, show us the, the statistics for this, because the books that take the genre boxes and are the least original are the ones that sell. And that's just not true. We do have the evidence and the statistics for it. And consistently, the books which break out in a massive way in genre fiction are the ones which cross their genre boundaries and find a readership outside of the usual box. And we see that again and again. That is that is a repeating pattern. That's how to find big breakout success, at least for sci-fi and fantasy. But I, th- I think as well, where you do cross genres like that, you need a publisher's reach yeah. to find those readers uh, yeah. and get you in bookstores, get you at uh, festivals and talks and conventions where you can talk about your book and maybe get you on local radio and podcasts and what have you. Whereas if you're writing something that's straight, and there's nothing wrong with this. I love no. straight down the line genre. You know, uh, it's um, you know, this is this is all good stuff. It's just if you're doing Facebook ads and Amazon ads, it's easier to do that, and you might as well do it yourself, and you might as well scoop up seventy percent of the the royalty, um, yep, in order to 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 sell that. So I I think so. Me, I you know, I've um, I'm, I'm traditionally published by Simon Schuster, and they've they've been fantastic. Uh, but also, I got like the end of Magic was a crowdfunding exercise with Unbound which was uh, five years ago, I got the rights back. Uh, and because Unbound weren't, didn't really know how to sell fantasy, frankly. And I got, but it was great to do. I enjoyed the process. And I kind of thought, oh, I'll just do that as a one-off. But when I knew that I, was, I could get the rights back, I thought, let's see if I can write a sequel. So I'm writing a sequel and I'm going to self-publish that this year and there'll be a third one next year. And that is, it's not straight down the line fantasy, but it's, it's, 
it's as it's as close to genre as I get. I mean, one of my problems is I can never write anything that's straight. I have to be a bit weird and go off the main road a little bit because that's just me. But um, but yeah, so I'm I'm self publishing that, and I think for the future. I will take each project as it goes. I'm yeah. currently co-writing a, a revenge thriller with another author, and she and I have been traditionally published. And we're thinking this: we're gonna, we are gonna put aside our weird little quirks for this one. We are gonna try try and write something that is, you know, mass market and commercial. And we will try the publishers first, you know, just to see if we can get that big deal, you know, because this is this an international story. It's set all over the world. We've got an American lead, a British lead. You know, let's see where we can go with that. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a horses for courses attitude at the moment. I am curious about how that turned out, right? Because you, you built a whole podcast around getting a, a book to be a bestseller and then you managed to become a bestseller, you know, Amazon bestseller or, or whatever else. What did, are you okay with sharing what that looked like from a monetary standpoint compared to what you might expect from launching something similar to Trad? Well, I mean, to me, my experience was all in traditional publishing and there was a way that we, we do things, as, as you folks will know about. So you're, you're working with retailers for promotions, you're working with mm-hmm. wholesalers, you're, you know, you're, you're doing those conventions and things like that. Whereas, um, uh indie was completely new to us and so we were kind of kind of going in a bit kind of newbies essentially so um all that experience didn't really mean much (laughs) frankly because it was kind of a whole a whole new world uh we did get to number one in 10 categories um some of them fairly minor categories and weird categories if i'm honest uh but the book has ticked along it's not it's not paying the mortgage. I'll say that, um, sadly, but yeah. it is a, you know, it's a cracking book. I'm very proud of it. It peaked and then it kind of tailed off. In fact, the one that yeah. seems to be doing really well is the audio edition, which I heartily recommend. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's probably the least selling of my books, I think, uh, out of all, all, all of mine, but you know, it ticks along. So it was, um, but again, we, we did something. If you listen to those early episodes, yeah. what we should have been writing was a thriller. Because everyone we spoke to said, write a commercial thriller. And the thing is, I don't really read. I might read one or two a year. Uh, Mark DeVoe, he's a kind of Linwood Barclay fan. He was a bit more familiar with them. Um, But we, what we did instead, we said, okay, what are we interested in? We love Douglas Adams. We love time travel. We love comedy. So we ended up with this book, Back to Reality, which is a, a sort of Freaky Friday body swap time travel comedy which, as you can tell from the collision of genres there, turns out to be quite difficult to sell. Uh, but this is the story of my life. The most common review I get on any of my books is, I wouldn't normally read this, but I really liked it. So, <laughs> which, which is the story. This is going to be on my publishing gravestone when I'm finished. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was in the end, it was a, it's a tricky book to sell because it doesn't fit into any particular genre. We should have written a thriller. If we'd written a thriller and a series of thrillers like Jack Recon, Reacher, Knockoffs or whatever, we'd be very well off. But that wasn't what we wanted to write. And I think one of the other big lessons we've learned from the podcast is okay, you've got to write what you love, because if you start writing to market, you will be so miserable, so utterly, utterly miserable with what you're writing. And I've, you know, I've met authors who've done that. They're kind of, 
well, everyone's running, you know, fantasy's not selling, so I'm going to write a thriller. And they're just, you know, they sell more, but they're not happy with it. You know, the so it's, you know, like I say, horses for courses. To thine eye self be true uh, in the end, but you may be skint as a result. You might, you've sort of written the exact opposite book of what you're telling people to do for indie, and I do find that funny. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Like I say, do as I say, don't do as I do. And the, th- the irony is we've got, like I say, all these authors who, you know, romance authors who've written really good commercial authors romance and and commercial thrillers and commercial fantasy and science fiction they've all done better than we have this is the thing our listeners uh, are our legacy you know these are the people who've done fantastically well uh, because they did listen and take the lessons on board unlike me (laughs) i think it's worth it for the conversations honestly i think you know because scott and i can never be bothered to monetize or anything like that and i think um we didn't want to be beholden to anyone and just we're never that organized but the, the conversations will stay with me for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we say things that people don't necessarily want to endorse. <laughs> <laughs> have you had any, have you had any, have you had any blowback on this after your first season? Have your publishers or agents come up to you and say, do you want to dial it down a bit? Do you want to, cause I love it. I love the honesty of it, uh, you know, but it's, uh, it, you do talk about things that authors aren't supposed to talk about. Not for yeah. me, because I'm in the a privileged position of basically saying that my experiences are generally good. Um, right. I, I'll leave Scott to answer his question, how he sees fit. Yeah. You um, can plead the fifth, Scott. You, can, you no, don't have to answer that. <laughs> I, I try not to anytime I can. I expected a lot more blowback than there has been. My, you know, I, I obviously have my uh, issues with, with how my debut went but after the podcast they've actually been quite excellent my agent and i requested an editor change and it was granted i'm now with an editor that fits a lot better and yeah i i mean i'm not encouraging people necessarily to to go out and uh (laughs) air all the dirty laundry they can but i do think that it's been received well even by people who i thought wouldn't receive it well just because they understand what's going on behind the scenes, right? Well, that, that's it. that's really good to hear, and I'm, gl- I'm glad you've heard that because, I mean, a couple of things. One one big lesson I learned from working for a, a traditional publisher, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. It was the authors who – and these, these were authors who were perfectly polite. They weren't being dicks. They were saying, I've got a problem with this. Can we sort this? There's an issue with my book on Amazon. There's a this, there's that. Yeah. And they would get fixed, and they would be persistent, but they would be polite. Of course, you did. There are occasional arseholes out there, but you know that's 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 another mm. story. But the other thing as well, I you know listen to your your podcast, and I've listened to you know when you listen to certain indie podcasts, you know they're like, oh, publishing it's full of gatekeepers and they're all bastards <laughs> and they're all, uh, and I'm like, no, I've worked with these people. These are good people. They really want your yeah, book yeah. to do well. Yeah. But the fact is, they're working for big corporations. They're constantly, I mean, I was made redundant five years ago and I, I, I volunteered for redundancy because I knew that if I stayed, I'd be doing the work of three people. And yep. that's that's what your editor is doing now. That's what your marketing yep. person, publicity person, they are all really under the cosh. So I'm very, yep. very sympathetic mm-hmm. to that, that they, their yep. lives are made more difficult because of capitalism, you know, because because every th- three years, all the major publishers have to renegotiate terms of Amazon. And every th- three years, they come away worse off. So they have to 
drop people and let them go. So, yeah. you know, I'm very aware of, uh, of you know, the, the problems that they face. But at the same time, the industry isn't perfect. They're, they could We could do certain things differently, you know. <laughs> I will say they weren't totally happy with Scott, but they kind of have learned to live with it. <laughs> that is that is correct. Yes. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't all good feedback, that's for sure. Yeah, I I think we will learn the true story of how upset they were when I go to pitch more books, which will be soon. So, we'll we'll see. I'll have my answer then. <laughs> but yeah, to to your point, Mark, I think we say it often, but the issues in the industry really are systemic, right? And good people in the industry are put in a position where they have to choose between mm-hmm. titles and which titles are going to get attention, which titles are, are going to get support. And it's really unfortunate that they have to do that and that there are titles that are picked up and, and aren't supported. But that's, that's the nature of the business, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I worked at Headline, we had a brainstorming session and it was one of those. There's no such thing as a stupid idea. No such. Oh, great. OK, I've got some ideas. And my first one was I said, uh, all of that money we spend on James Patterson, can't we just sprinkle some of that around some of our mid-list authors and gross and brands? Oh, that's a really naive suggestion, Mark. So, oh, fuck me. Right. OK, I'm out. <laughs> you know, so there are some people who who are just, you know, if you've got a big brand author like that, um, what happens is those big brand authors, they are concerned less with sales and it becomes a dick measuring contest about getting to number one. And one of, one of the things we were constantly focused on was making sure that brand author X got to the top 10 or the top five or the top three or to number one because some editor had promised that when they uh, when they renewed their contract with them because, you know, brand author X and Y might be our biggest sellers, but we know they're getting offers from Transworld and from HarperCollins and from Random House you know, mm. all the time. They could be poached at any minute now. So the publisher is desperate to keep them on in order to have the big brand name that gets to number one so they can attract other authors. Uh, but the trouble is when you end up uh, just focusing on the brand authors and you're not building brands behind them, which yeah. is what's happened, which is when when you remove so many editors and get them to the point where they can't concentrate on those growing authors, you end up with behemoths where, we, where we we're still publishing Wilbur Smith years after he died. You know, we were still publishing, you know, the, these big brand authors who maybe don't, need you know to to get into you know to have that railway railway advertising or under london underground advertising campaign because we know those campaigns are ineffective but they feed that author's ego and they make the agent feel happy and that you know because the most most effective advertising now is digital advertising because you can measure it you know if you do amazon marketing uh if you do facebook ads if you do online marketing you can say great this is the click-through rate this is the return on our investment we know this is effective uh whereas when you're doing railway ads no idea no idea all it is is just you know to make brand author x feel better about themselves uh, when they go to a convention and they can say to brand author y well look at me i got this promotion blah 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 so that's one of the things i'd like to change but i don't think it ever will change 
Um, the other thing I'd like to check, I mean, the big mistake, I think, certainly the big five are making, mm-hmm. is becoming bigger and bigger. They're, they're becoming bigger and bigger in order to square off against Amazon. Yes. But Amazon could gobble them all up in one fell swoop. I think if they want to challenge Amazon, they should break up into millions. You know, it's like, do you want to fight one Tyrannosaurus or a million ducks? You know, so, it's, uh, so <laughs> I, never I, I thought think, of it that way. <laughs> yeah. Whereas Amazon can't control lots of small publishers. But if they've just got the big five, then it's easy breezy for them. They just go in and have five meetings every three years or whatever. And uh, and they know they've got them by the cojones. So, you know, this, uh, those negotiations never, never come out well. And and not just them. They were negotiating with the grocers. So over in the UK, it was, you know, Asda and Tesco's and Sainsbury's and people like that, uh, where you're fighting for really small shelf space. But it's a shelf space that can catapult a brand into the the top 10 um so it is it was really really important of course you have you know chains in the uk like wh smiths where if the book is anywhere near the front of store they paid a lot of money for it to be there so it's um yeah they're it's whereas those middle publishers i mean the ones that i think are doing really well now are the digital first ones like bookature because they are data-based every there's no advances so everyone comes out of the traps and as an equal and then some will take off and some won't. And they will go, okay. And of course, the other thing Bookature do whenever they sign someone is everyone gets a newsletter, everyone gets a little mini website. They know. Uh, and they know exactly who's reading their books and they, they know exactly how to target them. So, um, yeah, whereas traditional publishing still flounders. I mean, I know Hachette bought Bookature in order to learn from yes. that, but they seem to be still making the same kind of sweeping generalizations. Oh, I mean, I would sit in meetings, you know, there'd be some new contemporary fiction. All women in their 30s will love this book. It's like, oh, for God, what? Is, is that your targeting? Is that your thinking? You know, and it still goes on, sadly. They have tried to address it, but they never stick with it. So, so I've got two questions about it. The first is like, um, you, you can ask me to say them again if we forget about them. But the first is, how do you see this this Amazon versus Big Five war going as we go forward? And and the second question is to do with digital publishers, because I have seen in SFF some digital first imprints launch and they were just bad. And I'm very, very sketchy of them now. Well, let me let me address the second one first, because okay. I think that is partly due, due to the genre. I okay. think that um, crime and romance work really, really well in digital first because those authors, again, sweeping generalisation, but people who read crime might read three crime books a week on their Kindle. People who read romance might read five books a week on their Kindle. They devour that fiction. Generally, you don't always see that in science fiction and fantasy. Generally, what you see in science fiction and fantasy is people love the object. They love the book with the gold foil and the spreads and the maps and all that kind of stuff. And they, they love to have something tangible, sweeping generalizations again. But that tends to be the case, you know. And, when, and, it, it, and there's a crossover with YA. I, mem- I remember we used to, Gollancz used to have a, a stall at Yauk, uh, the YA Literary Convention in London. Yeah. And you'd see readers with wheelie suitcases coming up and, and they just they just see a shiny book oh shiny and they buy it because it was shiny or it came with a bookmark or it came you know so those those kind of things that kind of readership if you're saying to them here's a new fantasy novel it's absolutely ace but you can only get an ebook an audiobook or a print on demand which isn't going to have any extras or added value to it 
then they're kind of they're kind of well, I've got all this cool stuff over here with shiny mm. spreads and things. So I think that might be part of the issue is the kind of readers who love science fiction fantasy like an object, whereas people who read crime burn through it. That's my theory, anyway, and that's that's kind yeah. of. You heard it um, here first. Science fiction and fantasy readers are indistinguishable from raccoons. <laughs> <laughs> you said that, Scott, not me. <laughs> if, if, I'm a, if I'm an MCM or Galantzfest and someone pounces on me for that, I'm, I'm giving them your number. Uh, well, they know where to find me. <laughs> No, I get that actually, because uh, when Book Eaters is coming out, uh, Harper sent me to York, and I was like, "Why well, am I going to York? I haven't written a YA book, and I'm like, it doesn't matter." And I got doesn't to matter. York, and, and it's like because it was an it was in a Lumicrate book. It's a beautiful book, book. and everyone people yeah. would queue, they would get it, they'd want it signed. It's like but you don't know if you'll like it. You don't, it's like it doesn't matter. It's a collection. It's going on the Instagram yeah. shelf. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, authors, if you want to know when your publisher stops loving you. It's when they stop putting specials on the cover of your book. I've been in meetings where that's happened. And, uh, you know, so when your, your first book will have embossings and gold foil and, you know, the paper quality will be great. And then by the third book, if it's completely flat on glossy, you know, with a glossy cover, that's it. You know, time to look at another publisher because, uh, you know, they, they, they are devaluing you with uh, the extras that they put on the cover of your book. Little top tip for you there. <laughs> Um, going back to your question about the the big five, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the fact is, books for Amazon, books are no longer their main focus, really. They're making movies and rockets and all that kind of, you know. And they make more money with their web services than anything else. They make mm. so much money from their advertising. I mean, it's um, it's become a shop window. You know, the 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 third, one of the things I was constantly doing as Amazon account manager at Orion was removing infringing editions, you know, so you'd, um, you'd have a Joe Abercrombie, you know, we'd have the Gollance edition in the UK or Michael Conley, and then you'd have the US edition, which is from a different publisher. And because the US uh, publishers seem to be, as soon as they get the metadata, they spurt it out into the world. So you'd, you'd look on Amazon and Michael Conley's new Bosch thriller would be the only title on Amazon. And ours doesn't go out until, you know, 12 months before publication. So I'd have to fill in a form and say, this is an infringe. This is infringing on our edition. And they say, well, where is your edition? Um, so Amazon, Amazon was a nightmare. Amazon is making money through third party marketplace sales. So there'll be someone who has a garage, you know, in Ipswich or whatever, selling secondhand books, or maybe they've got hold of first-hand, you know, copies or whatever, and they're undercutting the publisher by a penny, and sometimes that makes them the top search result. And Amazon, you know, doesn't pack the book, doesn't stock the book, but it takes a cut on every sale of the book. It's free money. It's free money for providing yeah. a window for big brand authors. So they're making tons of money on that. You know, the books thing, which was the core of their business once, uh, it has become almost a bit of an afterthought. They'll deny this strenuously, of course. Um, and my friends in KDP will deny that strenuously also. But you can't help but think that when they're building rockets shaped like penises, um, for whatever reason. Uh, so uh, it's, 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 it's not the main thrust, bad choice of word, of their, uh, of their business now. I mean, but that said, they do make a lot of money from it. And publishers are utterly, utterly reliant on them. They've, they're obsessed with pre-orders, which are less important than you think. And they're obsessed with 
you know, the Amazon charts, which no one looks at except publishers. And they're obsessed with, you know, star ratings and reviews. So it's um, Amazon has become a huge focus and they pub, Amazon know that they know that mm. publishers, you know, will the other thing that changed as well is that you could not lie to authors, but you could say to authors, hey, grand author X, your book is doing brilliantly. It's fantastic. Uh, and, you know, they, you'd make sure that if they lived wherever they lived, their bookshop would have copies and, you know, they'd have a, a dump bin at the front or what have you. And they, they'd be under the illusion that they were actually doing rather well. Whereas uh, now you can't get away with that because they're visible on Amazon. They're like, hang on, I'm getting nothing but one star reviews or uh, people are telling me they hate the cover or I'm, you know, I'm way down the chart. What's going wrong? So suddenly there's a visibility. Amazon has become this barometer where authors go, well, I'm doing really badly. Why is that? So that, you know, I remember the days before that happened. I think this is my theory. This is why, despite the fact he went to jail, I think this is why Jeffrey Archer doesn't do as well because Jeffrey Archer, I think... Not as many people read him as we were led to believe. Uh, you know, I think when I was a when I was a you know a book spire at, at Waterstones, you'd have the rep come in and say, "Yeah, take a hundred, and we'd send seventy back, thinking, "Well, maybe we're just doing badly with these." But I think everyone was. I think once you had that visibility of sales and Nielsen sales and that kind of thing, publishers were able to go. Yeah, some of these brand authors aren't as big as we think they are. So anyway, I'm going off on a rant. Th- that's so <laughs> weird. I, I heard somewhere, it might have even been your podcast, that people think Amazon makes all of the, the metadata stuff difficult and annoying on purpose just because it just, like, it wastes everybody's time. Like, they could make it easier <laughs> and they don't. But um, negligence, uh, maybe, rather than malice. Well, I mean, they there was a lot of data. There was a lot of information. Okay. I mean, the thing I used to do on a Monday morning, I would do my Monday report where I'd essentially compile the sales from the previous week and do a report to editorial and sales and marketing just to say, look, this is what's happening. This is what's, yeah. and you would, um, you, you got to the point where you could have hourly peaks in sales. So if someone went on this morning on the TV or they went on woman's hour on the radio, you could see the spike. You could say, oh, that's great. And so you soon got to know Front Row, Woman's Hour, Richard and Judy, they all had these effective sales spikes. Mm. I know a lot of your US listeners are going, what are these things? But you have equivalents in the States. So, you know, there were we did build this obsession with sales spikes mm. and then, you know, maintaining the momentum of those sales. Uh, but there was a lot of data to go through. And it was quite, it did become quite soul destroying because I, I started as a bookseller, then I was a sales rep for Headline, driving around the country. I sold, you know, Neil Gaiman's American Gods and Stardust, you know, hand sold them to booksellers. You know, that I was really passionate about that kind of stuff. And when I started at Orion, I was going to Otica's. You remember them, you know, fantastic chain, selling Michelle Paver and, you know, Joe Abercrombie and getting really excited and Scott Lynch and being really passionate about them. And then I ended up, my whole day was spent staring at bloody spreadsheets, Excel spreadsheets which I hate. I, I'd close my eyes at night and it'd be like the matrix. I'd see nothing but, you know, numbers. <laughs> so I was quite, it's interesting in, in my last year there, before I took redundancy, um, one of the sales directors there said, um, you're a nice guy, but you've lost interest, haven't you? I'm like, yeah, I kind of <laughs> you've sussed me out because, you know, it, it becomes soul destroying. It becomes a numbers game. I mean, that was also, there was a changing culture at Orion as well. Orion was also, was the part of Hachette that was like the crazy uncle at your wedding 
and you never know what they're going to do. And, you know, we would have these massive hits. We would have, you know, we had books by the, we had the Beatles Chronicles. We had um, Trini and Susanna. Remember them? We had Michael Palin, his travel books. We, we, you know, we'd have these massive successes and then we'd have these utter disasters, which took us to the brink, you know, but we loved that. That was what it was all about. And then what happened when Hachette, when they became bigger, we were essentially taken over by Little Brown. And Little Brown were always the safe bet. That's why they got the Steve Jobs book. You know, you knew with Little Brown, they would do the sums and you get a return on your investment. And in a way, that's what publishing has become now. They're sitting down, they're looking at comparison. We Every you know Tuesday, we'd have the acquisitions meeting. It would be, what's the comparison to this book? What What is this like that sold before? That's what it sold. Okay, that's what we think we're going to sell. And it was just like, Oh, really? We're doing that now? Oh, okay. And it's sensible. It's perfect. It's like doing your taxes every year. It's the sensible thing to do. It's going to save you money. But it did take a lot of the joy and excitement out of publishing because there's nothing more exciting than taking something that's a bit weird and making it huge and making it absolutely massive and crossing crossing over into the mainstream with it. And it happens less and less these days, sadly. Where do you see publishing as going? Like, are there trends that concern you? Are there patterns that excite you? I think what's exciting is you're you're seeing um, finally uh, white middle class publishing realizing there's something outside the white middle class that they can publish. So that's that's something that's finally being addressed. And you're also seeing that not just in the authors, but also the people who commission the books and that kind of thing. Uh, and th- it's not going to change overnight. Uh, I. My worry is that it will be seen as a trend and all it's going to take is a couple of books by non-white people to fail and there'll be people going, well, we won't do that again, Uh, especially with the number crunches. But I I do see that changing uh, slowly but surely. Uh, I think it's interesting seeing them taking a chance on new voices, uh, which is good. Um, There I am saying they're not taking risks a minute ago. But to be fair, they are doing some some stuff like that. I think you might see one of the big five hit some serious trouble in the next few years because they're not too big to fail. Um, I mean, you saw Simon Schuster try to, you know, they had their merger with, um, yeah, is it Penguin Random House turned down? And the reason they were doing that is because they're, they're, you know, they're doing it to survive. So what's going to happen, you know, with them? You know, it's uh, so it'd be interesting to see. Like I say, I think the mistake and this you see the film studios doing this as well they're all merging to become bigger and bigger and i think when amazon controls the funnel to readers as they do uh, i think that's probably a mistake because they could so much easier just to shut you up i was there i was there at um orion when amazon switched off all our buy buttons for weeks uh, I don't know if you guys uh, remember that. We had a terms negotiation, which which came to nothing. I heard about and it on we, print run. Yeah, and we, we put our feet down and said, that's it. And then they turned off all our buy buttons. So for a long time, uh, you couldn't buy our books directly yeah. from Amazon. Luckily, I, I, also, I also looked after the wholesalers because Amazon bought all their books from the wholesalers. So I did very well out there. <laughs> <laughs> so they were selling them but just not directly from us so you might see that happen again um some mm-hmm. a publisher putting their feet down but um yeah it's uh i i, I just the way it's always worked is is the small imprints uh the small publishers the small presses take the risks and then what happens is you know the big publishers come in and 
take those authors and try and do more with them. Twas ever thus. So, but I don't know. I do, I do worry that they'll get too big, and then one of them will collapse, and you know there will be problems. Yeah, it's uh, you. Some, I sometimes hear people say things to the effect of, "Oh, wouldn't it be great? You know, Trad is dying, and it should die." And it's like, but then every, no. all that's left will be Amazon, and that will be a yeah. fucking dystopia. And <laughs> we'll really, we'll really, be, really bad idea. Yeah, yeah living yeah. in our prime house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. No, you don't want that. I mean, what I am seeing more of on uh, on both sides, actually. I mean, I'm doing more of this. As you can see, I've, I've got my own stock here. I sell my books directly uh, from my website, signed copies that you can't get anywhere else. So mm-hmm. I, I do offer something that Amazon does not. So if you want to buy them from Amazon, and I'm not, you know, Amazon are really good. Let's make that absolutely clear. Their customer mm-hmm. service is fantastic. And if you're housebound you know if you're you know if you can't get out to a bookshop you don't have a bookshop near you fantastic absolutely fantastic um but you know it's uh they can't be the be all and end all um but yeah so i see a lot of authors offering different things doing special editions printing books themselves uh i know a lot of authors are starting to do their own audio and sell their audio directly bypassing audible so if you uh I, I see a lot of authors doing that and they're making a lot more money on audio than they are through mm. through going through audible so it's constantly changing it's constantly evolving i think what will remain and the thing that's great about indie publishing is anyone can do it mm. so you know you will still see those remarkable voices coming out of indie publishing and and uh people dipping a toe in and and trying stuff out and then maybe moving on to a traditional and you know bouncing back and forth i i think the idea that you sign up to a publisher and you're there for the rest of your career is is an old one and i think the good the good news for authors is indie means you can reinvent yourself constantly uh you know so if you are in a position where your books aren't doing well and you go back and they don't want your book fine i'll self-publish it or I'll, you know, I'll go to a digital first, or I'll go elsewhere, and I think there are more options than ever for for authors. And I think there's never been a better time to be an author. Your chances of getting your words out there and read are, are better than they've ever been in history. The trouble is, everyone's doing it, so it's quite crowded. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Given that Bookscan is inaccurate. Like how big, how important are Bookscan numbers to publishers when they are talking about sales and acquisitions? Because that's something that spooks us a little bit. The fact that for me, Bookscan is like maybe fifty-five percent of my sales. Yeah, and we do that. That does happen. That they'll say, "Okay, what's Bookscan?" And then usually the editor or someone in the sales department will say, "Oh, but by the way, it was you know it was it did really well in special sales. It did really well internationally. It did you know so that is taken into consideration. It's not it's not the be all and end all. Um, so yeah, I I I wouldn't worry too much about that. I mean they they are smart people making these decisions. They're, they're but it's also their job to save the publisher money. Yeah. So they will probably use it as ammunition against you when it comes to negotiating that deal. So then it's down to your agent to go, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let's see all the figures. Let's see, mm-hmm. let's hear the whole story. So Nielsen Bookscan is, um, it's probably used as a, as a negotiating um, point rather than, right. you know, an accurate measuring stick than anything else. 
I, I do have one question. So I'm just curious about your experience on the sales side for the publisher. You mentioned, you know, going to um, whoever you were selling to and, and selling big names. What kind of attention did the smaller names on your publisher's list get? What did that relationship look like for you as a sales leader? That's a good question. And when I was a sales rep, uh you and and when i worked in key accounts as well there were authors that we would adopt the ones you know we we had reading groups we had regular sort of reading groups where we'd all bring we'd all read a different book uh and come to the reading group and and say you know this is an underdog this we've all over this is undercooked uh we think we should do more with this and there are there are authors that you know benefited from people in-house reading it and being really passionate about it now the trouble is there wasn't always budget to actually do that but we could at least begin that word of mouth thing and say look can we print some proofs because the other thing that changed uh, when we moved into the big hachette building is we got you know a big printing room downstairs so we could do basic advanced i say proofs you say arcs advanced reading copies um hmm. you know we could we could print some of those off in order to distribute them and get that word of mouth going it wasn't That's a cool. massive marketing campaign but sometimes it led to big things it kicked off an author's yeah. career and yeah. uh when i was a sales rep driving around i knew which buyers liked which kind of genre so i would i would go to um uh, myoticas in East Grinstead because I knew Neil Gaiman grew up in East Grinstead and I knew the buyer there was a fan so I you know I'd be going to Jeanette and going it's Neil Gaiman and she yeah! and she you know so and that sort of would start spreading around the chain you, you there would be one of the nice things about and I think Waterstone still do this is is you know they have key buyers not at head office anymore but they have them in the stores so you know to go to a particular store and speak to a particular buyer and say this is the one we want for book of the month or whatever. So there is, there are those opportunities there, but you know if if they've if if there's been a big advance involved, then you have to earn it back, and they do get the focus. Um, and there there is less and less of that hand selling now, I think, um, than than there ever was. But um, but you know it's still there. It does still happen. I think. Right. This is the, the part of the podcast where we've now started asking people what the smallest hill they are willing to die on. And I mean, this can be anything from a lighthearted hot take to your pettiest pet peeve. I'd like to talk about American cultural imperialism, if I may, um, particularly particularly in the form. Now, this is something that um, is pertaining to Indian trad authors. So you get indie, like indie authors in the UK are terrified of publishing a book with UK English spellings in them because they've heard all these terrible stories of someone in, you know, in the middle of mid Midwest of America going, well, they spelt color with a U one star on Amazon. And they all live in terrible fear of this. Now, I guess if you're writing a thriller that's set in the States with American characters, maybe it's a good idea to use American spellings. Uh, but if like me, you're writing weird English stuff or you're writing fantasy that isn't set anywhere, but that's the language I write in. That's the language I'm going to write in. And it is this kind of, I think there's a, a fear amongst publishers and indie authors that they live in constant fear of, Oh, I'm going to get a one star review because I used to. And um, recently a friend of mine, Queeve McDonald, who's a fantastic writer, who writes um, sort of urban fantasy and also does crime thrillers. One of it, one of the forwards, 
to one of his books went viral recently because he was saying, look, I'm Irish. I write Irish. I, write, I do color with a U and I use, you know, S's instead of Z's or Z's. Um, so just deal with it. And that went viral. That's gone around everywhere. So, you know, Cueve is, is pushing the boundaries there. He's getting the word out there. But yeah, I think it's, um, it's one of those things that drives me nuts. Because when I was growing up, I was bombarded with American culture. I would read Mad Magazine and say to my dad, "Why? who's Spiro Agnew and why are they making jokes about him all the time? So my dad had to, I had to go and look this stuff up. I had to get, have this explained to me, all these American jokes, jokes about baseball and what have you. So all of that culture is pushed out. But if you try and get British culture into, and I'm not talking about, the other thing as well is you love posh British culture. You love Harry Potter because it's a boarding school and you love Bridgerton and what have you because it's a fantasy thing of, of what you think Britain is like. But actually, it's not like that at all. Um, and so it's really difficult to get to convince. Now, the weird thing is I've self-published the Woodville books in the States and they do very well because I'm targeting those readers who like my kind of stuff. But when I presented them to US publishers, they were like, well, it's not the kind of British stuff that Americans like. Sorry. It's like what they do, it just means you're going to have to work harder to do it. And the thing you learn from marketing people is they like an easy job. They like to be able to go, oh, this is straightforward <laughs> fantasy or straightforward. If it's a bit different, it's like, oh, I'm going to have to work at this. Apologies to all my marketing colleagues who are spitting venom at me now, but it's true. <laughs> they know it. Um, so, you know, it's uh, it, that that's the hill that I will die on and of course the irony is i'm writing this revenge thriller and if it gets published and gets picked up by a u.s publisher we will have no choice but to go through it and change biscuits to cookies and all of that kind of stuff so oh uh, you know i actually really that's one of the the regrets i have for book eaters is that in the edits a lot of things are americanized and i kind of went with it because i was under the misapprehension that i would be doing copy edits twice and that the uk version right. would change everything back um, and it didn't, and it just went to oh, print like that. And I felt really see? embarrassed because I did get some reviews of people being like, oh, you can tell this person doesn't really know England. It's like, no, I just <laughs> was taking out my hands. Yeah. Things like, it's small things like purse and handbag, right? And stuff like that. Yeah, there yeah, were yeah. bigger things. I think I'd gotten a note where they're like, oh, maths just sounds weird in American. Could you possibly change it to math? It's like, no, because then I sound illiterate to the people here. Um, I just, I, I think it's a bit, it's not treating readers very well, right? Like I think most readers can work out that a flat is an apartment and stuff like that. And it's just yeah, yeah. It's it is that it is it plays into this idea that publishers are gatekeepers, which I don't like. I I don't yeah. like to think of them like that because they are the good ones are your cheerleaders actually, and they do things really well. But it's it's coming the other way. Like I remember reading um I've forgotten the name of the author, but there was a novel called Robopocalypse, uh, which was kind of a World War Z but full got me doing it now but for robots and it was a fun novel but there was a bit set in england where a car drives into a fire hydrant and water goes everywhere it's like yeah our fire hydrant's all underground you know and a, a good english copy editor would have gone no sorry you have to change that um but you know stuff like that slips through so it, it seems mm. to be a one-way street and that's what annoys me my, my favorite one is i had a note that said uh that in newcastle in the original manuscript devon goes into a pub that's called the greyhound which is a place in, in newcastle uh, and you know the note i'd had from tor was could you not change this to a more english sounding name and i was like <laughs> But it's because they don't know that Greyhound Racing is like a thing here to them. It's mm. the bus company. And the I buses, did change it yeah. in the end because I thought they're going to, Americans are going to think it's like a, a bus pub or something. <laughs> <laughs> Just, anyway, yeah, I can join you on that. Yeah, you, you have to make those judgments. But there is, there is, you know, there's a, I, I'd like to see that change. And I, the weird thing is, I think 
through Netflix, actually, through, you know, being able to watch pretty much anything from anywhere in the world. Peaky Blinders. It, yeah, 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 exactly. It will change over time. You know, people will, will kind of get used to it. But yeah, it's we're not all, we don't all go to boarding school. We don't all go to public school. We don't all live in big country houses. A lot of us, you know, live quite normal, regular lives. And that's the sort of stuff I like to write about with dragons and witches and yes. stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, thank you for that. Um, if you'd like to take the chance, could you plug anything that you feel you want to showcase? I was going to say podcast, and I remember you've left it now. But yeah, well, it's still going. Uh, Mr. D <laughs> is keeping it going, bless him, and it's still there, the bestseller experiment, and all those episodes with me yakking on for hours and hours and hours. But we do speak to some amazing authors. Mm. Each one has a different story to tell. It is essentially, you know, the a, a great resource for any author out there. So do check those out. And they've got a Patreon and an, and an Academy as well, which is all fantastic. Um, I've got the Witches of Woodville series. I'm working on the fifth book in the series at the moment. Uh, it's essentially, um, it take the last 10 minutes of bed knobs and Broomsticks, a witch on the home front in England during the Second World War fighting Nazis and other supernatural threats. And they're good fun uh, stories. I'm working, uh, The End of Magic is out there now. I'm getting some new artwork for that soon, hopefully. And I, I'm hoping to publish uh, the sequel, The End of Dragons, this year, May, June this year. And there'll be a third book next year as well. So keep an eye out for that as well. And I've got a movie called Unwelcome, uh, which you can find at the time of recording is on Sky Movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's a really fun monster movie about a couple who leave london go to ireland and discover they've got red caps living at the bottom of their garden and we, we pitch it as a cross between gremlins and straw dogs uh to give you some idea so it's like little critters home invasion uh all your worst nightmares so yeah there's that as well you've been listening to the publishing radio podcast with sunny dean and scott drakeford tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry see you later 